This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. And turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to pick up uh, reading in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Well, this is the passage that we've been in for the last number of weeks And you'll remember that what uh, occasions this section, this really unpleasant section in Paul, is that there is a report, perhaps from Chloe's people. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says that there was a report among Chloe's people that there were divisions. Could be that this report came from Chloe's people as well. Um, But there was uh, an immorality, an immoral situation in the church in Corinth, and it was a shocking type of immorality. And Paul makes the, the comment of not only how, how shocking it was, something that the Gentiles don't even approve of, but he also turns around and is, we could say, even more shocked by the Corinthians' attitude and action in relation to this immoral situation. And their attitude was one of boasting. Paul tells them they should be mourning, they should be brokenhearted to to action. They should have been so grieved over this situation that it moved them to actually put this man out, but instead they boasted and Uh, I take that the boasting that Paul refers to twice in this passage is uh, the boasting of their own sense of uh, love and liberty and tolerance, Uh, not necessarily that they were boasting about the sin itself, but they were boasting about how loving they were to uh, such a person as this. And of course, Paul turns around and and in words that are incredibly strong, decides to take, uh, as it were, uh, apostolic and prophetic action. I think the idea of him being present with them, even though he's absent, is he's present through the authoritative reading of the letter that he sends. And he says that he actually has decided to turn such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And the, the very idea of turning him over to Satan uh, is the idea of putting him out from underneath the blessings and the protection of the church. And as it were, to put him out uh, back into the domain of darkness. In a sense, to... Um, let the devil have his way. It's not that the devil's interested in helping people be humble or helping people repent, but at the end of the day, the devil is God's devil. And God uses 
him sometimes even in redemptive ways. And so then Paul turns around and in beginning the passage that we read tonight, Paul then begins to rebuke their boasting and really their ignorance because the reason that they could boast about this, see how loving and tolerant we are. Um, we, we actually have a guy who's in a relationship with his stepmom. How awesome are we? And Paul rebukes them of their boasting. But the reason that he rebukes them is because they're totally ignorant of the, the, the principle of leaven. And the principle is, is just a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And so the biggest problem with the sin, sure, it was a problem with the offender and the person he was uh, in a relationship with, but the biggest problem that, that Paul has in view here is the effect that this has on the church. And in fact, left unchecked, it would permeate the whole church. And, 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 and we know the reality of actually letting sin go unchecked in the body, and it has a corrupting, defiling influence. And so Paul says, your boasting isn't good. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And um, this, of course, is a proverb not found uh, in in Scripture uh, verbatim. Uh, We have similar ones. You know, we noted, I think, last week, uh, one bad apple ruins the whole... uh, bushel or whatever we said, however we put it, you know the proverb. And the idea is is that um, left unchecked, health doesn't spread to sickness. Sickness corrupts health. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. And so Paul then turns around and he, he really exhorts them to uh, do what they did in, uh, in uh, ancient times, even up to present-day Orthodox Jewish homes, and that is you go through and you remove all the leaven. You clean it out. And this, of course, ends up being a picture of them cleaning out, as it were, removing the offender, who in this case is the leaven. So this is a case of what we would just call tough love, right? You've got to do this because um, you have to clean out that leaven before it spreads, Paul then reminds them, you need to become a new lump. So, so far in Corinthians, you've learned that we're all dirtbags and we're all lumps. And um, some of you are lumpier than others, right? So we have to become a new lump. But here's the glorious thing. Paul says, just as you already are, just as you already are. Become what you already are. Our Passover lamb, our Paschal lamb, Christ has already been sacrificed. Therefore, you are a new lump, a new batch of dough in Christ. So what Paul's exhorting them to do is actually just to be what they already are. And so the, um, the indicative is you are a new lump. The imperative is be a new lump. That's Paul's ethic in a sense. You are holy, so be holy. That brings us to this final paragraph. Now, you might notice, Paul says, I wrote you in my letter. What this means is that Paul actually has a letter that he wrote previously to the Corinthians. And what letter would that be? Is it before 1 Corinthians? Where's the letter Paul's talking about? We don't have it. We don't have it. Does that bother you? you don't, we don't have something that Paul wrote. We probably have lots of stuff that Paul wrote, or don't have a lot of stuff that Paul wrote. In fact, we know that Paul actually wrote another letter to the Corinthians that we also don't have. There are at least four letters that Paul wrote. We have two of them. And that shouldn't really bother us very much because in God's providence, we have what God wants us to have, right? But Paul says, I wrote to you, in my previous letter, and, and, and really what he's going to appeal to is, I've already told you this. I've already instructed you on this. He clearly made reference to uh, dealing with immoral people in his previous letter. 
Now, this is, this is the amazing thing. If you, if you think about what Paul is saying here, here you have this, the, the hideous immoral nature of this sin that exists in the Corinthian church. And then you have the Corinthians boasting about how liberal minded they are and how, and, and they're so arrogant. And yet they misunderstand Paul's previous letter about not associating with immoral people. It's absolutely astonishing when you, when you think about it. And then, of course, if you look at how Paul has to clarify what he previously said, um, what you have is the church at Corinth associating with a well-known immor- sexually immoral person in the church while perhaps keeping their distance from the immoral people outside of the church. We don't hang out with those people. They're yucky. Now, we've got our own yucky people, but we love them, and grace covers everything. They're proud about this. Now, maybe maybe they were confused. Maybe they really did think to themselves, um, it's okay if we have um, sexually immoral people in the church, and we love them and show them grace, but then the sexually immoral people outside of the church, we keep our distance from them, um, Maybe they were willfully confused. You know, sometimes when we're determined in our own sin, we can become willfully confused, confused on purpose. Uh, Gordon Fee says, maybe this is a deliberate misrepresentation of Paul's former instruction. But this makes their arrogance and their inaction all the more grievous that they would actually misunderstand, whether it was intentional or not. And here's what Paul wrote to them in his former letter, not to associate with the pornois, with the sexually immoral. And when he says not to associate, the idea is to mingle with, to mix with, to keep company with, to keep up an intimate personal relationship with. Now, by the way, by close personal intimate relationship, I'm not talking about anything romantic. I'm talking about just the idea of, of being in close association or even friendship with. And Paul says, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people, not to mingle with, keep company with, to be in close relationship with the sexually immoral Now, another possibility about the way the Corinthians could have, uh, at least some of the Corinthians could have understood this, is that the arrogant among the Corinthians could have really made this a point of ridicule with Paul. Paul is is so out of touch. He wants us to, to, to stay away from all the sexually immoral people. It's impossible. Paul's actually not saying that at all. In fact, what he says is, that's not at all the meaning of what I wrote to you. New American Standard, I did not mean. ESV, NIV do the, uh, the, the same way. Not, not at all the meaning. New Living Translation, I wasn't talking about unbelievers. Yeah, I told you not to associate with the sexually immoral, but I was altogether not talking about the unbelievers. In fact, Paul says this in a way which is absolutely emphatic. You could say something like this. It was altogether not my meaning that you should not associate with the sexually immoral of this world. Of course, sexually immoral uh, at this point is not just in, in terms of the very narrow perspective we have at the beginning. Now, in a sense, it's a very broad category. You're not to associate with the sexually immoral people of the world. That's not what I was saying. They are of this world. 
And, and, and in fact, if they are of this world, what do we know about this world? Well, this world is in the power of the evil one. This world is passing away. This world is under the law of sin and death. This world actually is filled with sinners of all kinds and nothing but. You remember in the movie Braveheart when Long Shanks is up in the tower and he says, the problem with Scotland is that it's filled with Scots. You guys are sleepy tonight, aren't you? The problem with the world is that it's filled with worldlings. But it doesn't, it shouldn't surprise us, right? I mean, this is in a sense Paul's point is I did not mean for you not to associate with the sexually immoral people of this world. And then Paul goes and starts to give a list here. Nor did I mean the greedy. That is people who always desire to have more, especially those who will defraud to get it. You know, anybody like that in the world? Um, the, the next word is, is closely related. Or swindlers. You know any swindlers? The, 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 the interesting thing about this word is that it means rapacious. That is in like, like the idea of ravenous. Um, some uh, lexicons say uh, the diston- dishonest or rogues. I like that, rogues. We don't use the word rogues much anymore, do we? Anybody that is interested in getting what one commentator calls all undue extractions. In other words, the people that are always trying to swindle other people out of things. The greedy, the swindlers, and then he says, or idolaters. Huge category. Those who actually worship someone or something other than the true and living God. And what Paul's saying is, I was not saying to you not to associate with the sexually immoral, the greedy, the swindlers, or the idolaters of this present world. This world is so filled with the sexually immoral and with the greedy and the idolaters and, and, and the swindlers and you name it. It is so filled that if that's what I would have meant and I didn't, you would be obligated to actually depart from this world. If I meant worldlings... That would obligate you to leave this world. Would you have any place to work? Who would you work with? And you can't all work at church. (laughs) Could you go to school anywhere? I go to a Christian school. Well, guess what? I'm pretty sure... There are the sexually immoral, greedy swindlers and idolaters in Christian schools too. Where could you go? Where could you shop? Where could you eat? Paul's point is clear. Listen, what, what do sinners do? They sin. And guess what? That's all that they know to do. They don't know anything else. This is their, this is their world and life view. This is their pattern. This is, and this is not to condone, as Paul's going to say a little bit later, God will judge. This is not to condone their behavior, but it is for Paul to just clarify. When I said don't associate with the immoral people, I was not talking about the immoral people of this world. And in fact, our Lord Jesus in John chapter 17, verses 15 to 17, actually prays for us, not that the Father would actually take us out of this world, but that he would keep us from the evil one. And so we have a little saying that is, that is absolutely true, that Christians are in this world. Locationally, we are in this world, but we are not of this world. 
This world which is under the law of sin and death, this world which is under the, the power of darkness, we are not of it. That is, that is, we are not stamped by it. We are not owned by it. We are not a part of it. We have to live in it, but we are a different kind of people. We are an otherworldly people. And that is, we are of the world to come. Now, you understand that this, for all true children of God, this in the world but not of the world is an incredible point of conflict and tension in every day life. You feel it? Do you feel the the gravitational pull of this present age? Do you feel that 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 pressure to conform your thinking and your behavior to the standards of this world? Paul's absolutely clear. That's this present age. Sexually immoral, greedy, swindlers, idolaters. That's what makes up the people of this present world. And you can't distance yourself from them. In fact, and this is not Paul's point, but it bears it bears emphasis, and that is, apart from us, where would witness for Christ be among those that are lost and dying in this world? And the only way that we can actually be a significant witness in this world is if we are not of this world. So Paul clarifies, this is what I did not mean. And then verse 10, or verse 11, he gets to what he did mean. He says, but I actually wrote to you. It's possible that he could be saying, but I now wrote to you, referring to his present letter. But I think that's, that's improbable. Uh, it is probably more this. I, but actually, or in fact, I wrote to you. In other words, this is what I really meant when I was writing to you about not associating with the immoral. And that is not to associate, quite literally, if anyone is a brother in name. Oh, this is, this is where we have to pay close attention. We get this not of the, not of this world thing, that truth, but here's where we need to pay close attention. I actually wrote to you not to associate with anyone who is a, literally a brother being called or a brother in name. Now what Paul's doing here is Paul is making an incredibly important distinction here. In fact, I can't tell you how important this this is. If, If I could preach one sermon to the entire evangelical church in America, I would probably preach this. And that is, not everybody who says they belong to Jesus really belongs to Jesus. We have, we have an epidemic, a spiritual epidemic 
in Western churches that have, that have imbibed the idea of decisionism and just, uh, we, we, we have made salvation, in a sense, um, into this uh, minimalistic contractual thing that happens between us and God, and the Bible presents salvation as a supernatural, life-changing uh, event by the Holy Spirit. And so what we have is we have, we have churches that are, that are full of people who have, who have prayed prayers and signed cards and raised hands and went forward and got baptized and joined churches and they jumped through whatever, whatever hoop was put in front of them. Jump through this hoop and you're in. And yet Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Paul's now clarifying something, and that is, I wasn't talking about worldlings, I was talking about, and I think the NAS does, does it right here, I was talking about so-called brothers. Paul's distinction is clearly between those who belong to Christ have been made new by the Spirit and have put away the old. Now, do they still struggle? Well, of course. But at bottom, there's no doubt to whom they belong. You understand that struggling is not a, is, is not a sign that you're probably not saved. Struggling actually could be a great sign of health. Okay, so let me just say, if you're not struggling, you're probably not saved. Why would I say that? Because Paul says the flesh wages war against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these two are in opposition to each other so that you do not do the things that you please. Galatians 5.16. There is, so, so when a person comes to faith in Christ, real faith in Christ that has been enlivened by the work of the Holy Spirit... They now have peace with God, but they also have warfare like they've never known. Right? And so, in one sense, we're at peace with God, and in another sense, there's a war within and a war without. It's a fight. And if you don't know you're in a fight, maybe it's because you're knocked out. You're unconscious. And so Paul's not talking about people who struggle here when he says not to associate with anyone who is a brother in name. What he's talking about is talking about those who say, verbally say, I belong to Christ, but they persist in an unrepentant way in the old life. Now, do you understand that Paul addresses this multiple times in his epistles? Think of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Anybody remember how, of course, you're close enough, you could just look over at it. How does it start? What's that? No. Close. Do you... Yes. But listen how he starts. Do you not know? We saw this last week or week before, right? Which is the idea of you should know. 
Most certainly you should know. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then what is the next line? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Paul will say three times in his writings, do not be deceived. In relation to this idea, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. What Paul is getting at here, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, and Ephesians 5, 3 through 6, I think, is the idea of, listen, if if God has saved you and you've been renewed by the Holy Spirit, you don't stay in the old life. It's not to say that, 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 that there's not a, a pool. It's not to say that we don't stumble. It's not to say that we don't, that we don't fall on occasion. But what it is to say is that the newness is really new. And that the gospel actually is not just a transaction in which your sins are forgiven. The gospel actually transforms. Oh, the gospel wonderfully, blessedly is, brings us the forgiveness of sin through the blood of Christ. But that very same gospel is the very power of God unto salvation. And salvation is not just simply justification. It is justification. It is sanctification. And it is glorification. And so, Paul says, do not be deceived because... In his day, as in ours, there were people that would say, you've come to Jesus, you've got the Holy Spirit, you're going to heaven when you die. It'd be nice if you lived an obedient life. It'd be nice if you lived a changed life. But listen, at the end of the day, you don't have to. It's not necessary. You're saved by grace. You know, Paul emphatically teaches us that the same grace that justifies is the same grace that sanctifies. The same grace that brings us the forgiveness of sins also brings us a transformation of life. And so you get all kinds of awful, uh, twisted, perverted teaching that makes people feel comfortable in their sins trying to assure them that they have fire insurance when they die and they're deceived. They're deceived. I want you to think for a minute about standing at the judgment on the last day assuming that because you did whatever evangelical hoop you were supposed to do, that you're going to enter into heaven. And this has been, this has been the assumption your whole life. It never stopped you from having sex with your girlfriend. It never stopped you from smoking pot. It never stopped you from being greedy. It never stopped you from cheating people. It never, it never did anything other than gave you a sense of peace when you went to bed at night and felt guilty about your sins. And then you thought, well, all is well. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And you're standing there on that day And you've got your, your fire insurance policy. This is what's gonna, this is what's gonna keep me out of hell and get me into heaven. And then you actually go before the judge and what you realize is that you're holding nothing but a lie in your hand. You think there's a reason why Paul says don't be deceived? It's because self-deception is so possible with us. And so Paul makes it clear, listen, I wasn't talking about worldly people that you're not to associate with. I'm talking about somebody that says they are a Christian. Christian. 
Calvin says, in short, being called a brother means here a false profession, which has no corresponding reality. This is the way that Paul completes the sentence. Not to associate with anyone who is a so-called brother, if he be. And then we have a list here. By the way, this list is not exhaustive. All right? Um, It would have taken another book if Paul were to have given us an exhaustive list. This list is what we could consider a sampling of prevalent sins among the Corinthians. If Paul was writing to to us 21st century Americans, the list of sins may have been different. They may have been the same. But notice what tops the list, the sexually immoral. So not to associate with any brother so-called if he be sexually immoral. Are people in the world going to be sexually immoral? Yes. Should those that take the name of Christ be sexually immoral? No. It's interesting, in Paul's lists, this one usually gets top billing. We'll see why in chapter 6. Then he says something that blows our paradigm apart, or the greedy. Any so-called brother who is greedy. Now, you have to understand that sexual immorality is a yucky sin. Greed is a respectable sin for us. In fact, we might feel a little bit of discontinuity between a so-called brother who is sexually immoral and a so-called brother who is, who is greedy. In fact, in Paul's previous list, when he was talking about those who were uh, in the world, uh, greedy and swindler were actually put together, tightly connected. And the reason is, is because they actually have a lot in common. And so Gordon Fee makes his comment. He says, perhaps the more surprising items for later readers, that's us, are the greedy and swindlers. It's surprising because for many North American believers, such sins seem less egregious than sexual immorality or idolatry and certainly less culpable of exclusion from the Christian community. But the ancient world, both pagan and Judeo-Christian, had a special loathing for avarice that hundreds of years of legitimized greed in our culture have mitigated. We're not nearly as shocked by greed. And Paul says, or an idolater. What? A so-called brother who's an idolater? Well, remember what Paul says in Colossians 3.5. He says, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Idolatry. Is it possible for a professing Christian actually to be an idolater? And the answer is is clearly yes. I had an interesting conversation with a guy in my office two or three weeks ago. And um, rank unbeliever. And um, I told him he was an idolater. He actually broke the first commandment. He couldn't believe that I thought he was an idolater because for him, he didn't have any stone or wood things that he worshipped. And when I said, well, actually, anything that you put above God, well, I don't put anything above God. Really? This is amazing. So you actually love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love nothing before him. He said, yeah. And so I started asking other questions. And had to point out that when God says, do this or don't do that. And we say, 
I don't care what you say. I want to do this or not do that in contrary to what you have said. At that point, we are idolaters. And no idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. He then says, or the abusive, um, New American Standard here has, um, let's see, uh, reviler. That's not really, that doesn't connect, does it? You reviler. Is that offensive to you? Chad, you're such a reviler. Okay. Well, I know I'm a recycler, but I didn't know I was a reviler. Does that mean I do the same vile things over and over again? A reviler? No. The idea of a reviler is a slanderer. Or, perhaps even better, an abusive person. Now, what Paul has in mind here, the word, the word itself actually is often in connection, used in connection with drunkard. Drunkard and abusive person usually go together. And the idea, it could be on one hand, a slanderer making false accusation. Uh, but the idea that probably is more in mind is somebody that is a verbally abusive person. Somebody who tears somebody to shreds with their words. Hmm. You know... You know what's bothersome about these lists that Paul has? Is that some of them just get too close to home. Or a drunkard. I don't think I need to explain this one too much, right? It's a person who habitually drinks too much and becomes a drunkard. Barart and Gingrich, the the lexicon of New Testament Greek, points out that both this and and abusive speech or abuser usually go together. And there's a reason for that, right? Sometimes, and I thank God that I never experienced this growing up, But you ever heard of a mean drunk? Right? It's a person who, because of the alcohol, uh, all of their all of their inhibitions are gone. They have not only no self control, so that they're drunk, but now they have no self control over their mouth. And then Paul throws in for good measure swindler. Now. Um, what Paul's saying is, is that you're not to associate with so-called brothers who fall into these categories. And then he says this, not even to eat with such a one. And you know, the the, the question at this point ends up being, um, are we going to accept what God says is loving or are we going to make our own standard of what is loving? Paul says you don't associate with them, but then he says you don't even share a meal with them. And of course, in the ancient world, and, and in a large degree for us too, the idea of sharing a meal is the most basic form of fellowship. And I don't think that what Paul has in mind is this. You let them come to church, you just don't sit down and eat meatballs with them during the potluck. In fact, not even to eat with such a one is an amplification of don't associate. Okay? Now, from Paul's Jewish context, um, if you were a Jew, you could, you could do, have business dealings with a heathen, but guess what you wouldn't do? You wouldn't eat with them. Okay? You would not eat with them. The reason was, is because eating actually implies friendship. 
And Paul is, Paul is saying something that it's so hard for us. And that is, if you have somebody who professes to be a Christian and yet is living in a way that is absolutely contrary to the gospel itself, not only are you to avoid association with this person, you are actually not even to eat with such a one. Gordon Fee makes this comment. He says, by their own actions, they've opted out. So talking about the, the, the so-called brother who continues or persists in these ways of, of sin. So by their own actions, they've opted out. The community must distance itself from such people for its own sake. This is a reflection of the essential nature of the community of the spirit which is to be different from the world in which it lives. In other words, what Paul is saying is is that there is such a profound fundamental difference between the community of Christ that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and a person who professes to be a Christian and yet is a worldling to the core. The, The difference is so profound that the community of Christ is called upon to distance themselves from those who actually are living hypocrisy. Now, the question comes up, is this just a corporate thing? In other words, is this just what the church does, but I'm free to go to Taco Bell with them? This is hard, too. Calvin answers the question for us, and I think he's absolutely right. He says, does it, he's asking the question, is this just corporate or is it individual? And Calvin says, it certainly refers to individuals, but nevertheless, it depends on the discipline of the fellowship. For the power of excommunication is not granted to each member of the church, but to the whole body. The point is that no believer ought to enter into friendly relations with anyone whom the church has excommunicated. Besides, the authority of the church would count for nothing if individuals were allowed to invite to their own tables those who had been disbarred from the Lord's table. In other words, when an individual Christian acts in a way that's contrary to the uh, declaration of the church, they're actually defying the authority of the church and as it were, um, usurping that authority by saying, well, we realize that, that you may have debarred them from the table, but they're welcome at my table. People do these things with good motives. But good motives doesn't make it Biblical. And so we, we have people in our, who used to be a part of our congregation who have been excommunicated. I think Paul's really clear. We are not free on a corporate nor an individual level to associate or even eat with such a one. Why? It is a part of what it means to turn over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I have a story, and I want to keep all the names out of it. Um, We had a man who was excommunicated and was an adulterer, had left his wife, and he was moving from his apartment. And so he called another man in our church whom he knew would come and help him. And so this man went and helped him move. And I, when I found out, I said, are you out of your mind? Why would you help him? Move. 
And he said he didn't have anybody to help him. That's the point. That's the point. Let him feel the burden of moving a couch by himself because he doesn't have any brothers or sisters to help him. I know that sounds mean and it sounds harsh, but again, the question is, is are we going to do things God's way and be faithful to God's word and trust that God knows what is the most loving and wise thing to do? Or are we going to take it upon ourselves to accept our own standard of what being loving looks like? Verses 12 and 13. Paul says, For what do I have to do with judging those outside the church? In a sense, what Paul's doing in 12 and 13 is he's bringing, he's bringing the, the, the whole argument, which is started from the beginning, brings it all into focus here. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders that is outside the church? My, my job is not to pass judgment or bring condemnation on those that are outside the church. That is, of course, unbelievers. It's not your business, not my business to judge those who are outside the church. That doesn't mean that you condone sinful behavior, but it does mean that we're in a position with unbelievers that we don't go around condemning them for their sin. And then he says, Do you not judge those inside the church? Now, here's a really cool thing in Greek, and that is you can ask a question, and by on the basis of the word that you put in the front position of the sentence of the question, you can actually tell whether you're expecting a yes or a no answer. Do you wish we had that in English? It'd make life a lot easier, wouldn't it? Do you not judge those inside the church? And guess what? The answer, the implied answer is yes. Professing Christians who are members of the church. By the way, this theme is the theme of the whole passage. We are absolutely allergic to this. So, so let's, let's, let's do a, a theoretical test here. So let's pretend that we have a whole cross-section of evangelical Christians from uh, all over northern Nevada. Let's say we have a hundred of them, and we, and we pose this question. Are you supposed to judge those who are inside the church? Out of the hundred, how many do you think would say, no way, are you kidding me? That's not what we're supposed to do. Do not judge, lest ye, ye, ye be judged. How many out of 100 are we going to say, no, that's not our job? What's that? Yeah, I'm like, I'm thinking like maybe like 96. That's, that's the percentage I'm going with, 96. I think 96 would actually, and then, then, then you could drop this on him. Do you know that Paul actually asked that question? Oh, really? 1 Corinthians 5. Huh. Not familiar with that passage. Do you know that Paul actually tells us how he wants it answered? Do you not judge those who are inside the church? And he wants you to answer this question, yes. Now, this doesn't mean that we go around saying, you know, silly things to each other, judgmental things to each other, critical things to each other. You know, your hair's not long enough. Your hair's too long. Your hair, you know, uh, you know, your, your, uh, you know, your, your pant legs, you, you wear floods. Um, that's really, it's offensive to me. You're causing me to stumble. Um, do you know that you wear um, black socks with blue pants? I find that highly offensive. Um, uh, not this kind of silliness, right? But is the church actually called upon to exercise biblical discernment when it comes to the standards of God's word? The answer is yes. That's our responsibility. And so Paul then says, those outside God, it's either God judges or God will judge. 
It's either a, a present tense or it's a future tense. There's no way to tell for sure because it depends on accenting and there were no accents in the original text. So we don't know for sure whether Paul's making some sort of axiomatic statement. God judges those outside the church. Or whether he's making an eschatological statement of God shall judge those outside the church. The, 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 the difference is no big deal because, in a sense, both are stating the same truth. And that is, um, there's one who is the judge, and he will judge all of the earth, either now in temporal ways or in the last day in a final way. That's God's job. What would you think Paul would say next? Without looking at the text. Do you not judge those who are inside the church? Those outside God judges. What do you think the last line would be if you wanted really nice symmetry? But you judge those who are inside the church. So like maybe a really nice balanced repetition. He doesn't do that. In fact, what he does is he quotes Deuteronomy 17.7, which by the way, what's interesting is that this is, uh, this is virtually direct quotation from, from Deuteronomy 17.7, and yet there's no quotation formula. Paul usually does this. When he's going to quote the Old Testament, he usually says something like this, for it is written, right? Doesn't do that here. He says God judges those outside the church. And then in, in, in what is just nothing but just an abrupt imperative. Remove the evil man from among yourselves. Paul, Paul concludes this section with a quotation from the Old Testament that is the imperative for the church. No connecting words, no, no uh, conjunctions, no um, standard uh, quotation formula. Paul just ab- abruptly attaches this command, as it were, to the previous three clauses. Do you judge those who are inside the church? Yes. In a sense, remove the evil man from among you. Does God judge the outsiders? Yes, that's God's job. What's your job? Remove the evil man from your midst. And by the way, the word remove is only used here in the New Testament. And it means to expel, to drive out, to exclude, to remove. The evil man or the wicked man here is not the struggler, nor is it even just a designation for an unbeliever, but the evil man or the wicked man that is mentioned here is one whose life is characterized by sin, and yet he professes to be a so-called brother. That's the evil that's to be removed. He's not talking about worldlings, he's already addressed that. And in fact, it's, it's absolutely emphatic. There, there's, there's, there's actually no other grammatical construction that is quite like this. It is unusual. Um, remove from among yourselves. And even that doesn't capture it because there is this uh, emphatic use of the pronoun. You yourselves remove from among yourselves. The evil man. Now, by the way, I did a little survey through Deuteronomy today, and throughout Deuteronomy, there is this, there is a constant refrain, and it goes for false prophets, it goes for uh, drunkards and sluggards who abuse their parents, on, on and on. And it is after the, the text is given, then there is this refrain remove or purge the evil from among your midst. Now, Old Testament church discipline was either exile, be cut off from the land, or execution. Okay? That's how Old Testament church discipline was done, exile or execution. New Testament discipline is excommunication. 
When execution happens, that's God's prerogative, i.e. Ananias and Sapphira. Okay. The church acts, it's excommunication. Well, what is excommunication? If you take what Paul says seriously from Deuteronomy 17, and you take seriously what he has said throughout the entirety of this passage, then the person who is the unrepentant offender, okay, again, assuming that we do all the things of, of trying to win them and trying to, trying to woo them, trying to encourage them, trying to counsel them, uh, you know, going to them not once, not twice, but as, just as, as, as often as, as, as it is plausible. We're not talking about a quick pull of the trigger here, but when this happens, the picture is not simply they still get to be a part of the church, they just can't take communion. The picture is that they are actually put out. So Paul, in this passage, makes a very clear distinction between the world and the church. You understand he has to because the Corinthians wouldn't. The world is is lost and lost people sin and sinners were received by Jesus and sinners should be received by the church, but sinners should also be called to repentance. The church itself has been saved out of the world. Therefore, the church should be different. It's not of the world. Those who profess to belong to Jesus should have the characteristics of really, truly belonging to Jesus. And if this passage does anything for us, this passage just drives home the reality that we cannot, under the banner of love or liberty or tolerance, accept what is unacceptable in the word of God. For those who profess faith in Christ. In fact, it's the, it is the newness of life in the spirit that demands that the church upholds scriptural standards. And the church will never do this perfectly. Ever. But she should so strive. What this means is that discipline is a mark of the true church. True church is marked by the presence and the preaching of the gospel. That gospel changes lives. The true church is marked by the observance of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, marking out those who were following Jesus. And the true church is identified by discipline when necessary. When there is impenitence, the church cannot be idle. Do you understand if the man mentioned here in verse 1 had actually repented? Paul would have probably never even had written this. Because no matter how grievous the sin was, If there's repentance, there's restoration. So when there is impenitence, that is, when the offender refuses to repent, the church cannot be idle. It must act, and it must act for the honor of Christ and the purity of the body and for the good of the offender. Anything less is not real Christian love. Let's pray. Father, these are, these are hard things. And yet, we know they are true things. Father, we pray on the one hand for those who are 
too zealous to enact these things. And Lord, we pray on the other hand for those who are too reluctant. We pray that you would give us biblical love and fidelity to your word. And Father, we thank you that your ways are always best. And we thank you that it's your ways that most effectively restore those who have fallen. Lord, we think of those who used to be among us and now are no longer among us. And we pray that you would so work in them that they would come to repentance so that their spirits would be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.